Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and I'll be your host this episode. If this is your first time joining us, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to our last episode, with featured an interview with someone we're calling D, who's a missionary to Bosnia. D shared how his years of experience as a member of the persecuted church have changed the way he thinks about his privileges and responsibilities as a Christian with U.S. citizenship. Later on, we'll have Pastor Charles Drew lead us in prayer in response to some of the political turmoil that's been happening around us. But until that last segment, most of this episode is a direct follow-up to the interview with D. Now, I'd like to introduce our guests, because we have two of them this week. Kara Callahan is the Director of Operations for Radstock Ministries, a global missions partnership organization, and she'll be helping us break down some of the stories that Dee shared. Also joining us via Skype this week is Ben O'Dell. Ben is the chair of the Center for Christian Civics Executive Board and has spent 15 years working to help faith leaders connect and work with government to address needs in their communities. It's important to note that on the podcast today, Ben is speaking in his personal capacity, and the opinions he expresses don't necessarily reflect the opinions of the government agency he works with. Kara, Ben, thank you both for being here. I'm really glad to have you join us. Glad to be here. Excited to talk to you today, Rick. Excellent. Kara, uh, I want to jump right in with you. Uh, some of the stories we heard in that interview last week or two weeks ago uh, were pretty harrowing and really outside the realm of my experience being a Christian in the U.S. Uh, how common are those kinds of stories, those kinds of experiences of persecution for our brothers and sisters around the world? Well, I would say we don't really have accurate statistics on how common those are, especially if you're a Christian in a country where your government isn't going to defend you or bring any uh, persecutors to justice. Those things don't get reported. So there's no way to really have an accurate number, but I think it's safe to say that it happens too often in that um, in this day and age that anyone still faces that kind of persecution and, you know, is has no defense or it has no one to defend them. Uh, one of the things that came up in that interview that you pointed out was that if, for instance, the man who was beaten and stabbed, I think it was 27 times, had gone to the police to report the crime, nothing would have been done. I can tell you that through Radstock and the church partners that we have, we've heard stories from many different places of people who are threatened or beaten because of their faith, people who are uh, denied basic things like access to the well in their village because of their faith or because they're considered unclean. Um, it, it's, it's not an uncommon story. To a degree, a system like the Bosnian system where uh, the parties aren't voluntary organizations, they're actually written into the constitution and which constituencies, which parties represent and fight for are also written into the constitution, are legally mandated. 
um, to a degree, that makes life a little easier for citizens in that Bosnians don't have to deal with the constant onslaught of political persuasion that people in the U.S. need to filter through. Um, in a season like this, where our politics is so dysfunctional and so toxic, uh, part of me hears about the Bosnian system where they say, all right, there's a Serbian party that represents the Serbs. There's a Catholic party that represents the Catholics. There's a Muslim party that represents the Muslims. Uh, part of me thinks that just sounds so much easier. Uh, what do we gain by having a system in which all of our voters are essentially swing voters? Mm. Uh, well, I keep thinking, Rick, to your point, um, that where people and, and people organize in different ways and connect with different people in different, different places. Um, and sometimes when we have some of that um, uh, similarity and we find these other people and we're just similar to them, that we reinforce all our existing ideas and there's no way in which our ideas get challenged. There's no way in which our perspectives um, get honed. You know, iron sharpens iron. It, it makes mm -hmm. ideas better when we bring together across differences and have lots of different ideas and we have to wrestle with and make our ideas better because of the differences with, with which we relate. Um, and in uh, the system like ours that kind of brings together people into really big tents, um, you're going to have a lot of different opinions in those conversations. You're going to have a lot of different perspectives about how to move things forward. Um, and if ultimately we can know how to manage that conflict, if we can appreciate the strategy for which um, ideas are brought together effectively, then ultimately uh, we'll have better ideas um, honed by and shaped by a diversity of perspectives. Now, let me say, Rick, to your point, yeah, that's harder. That's harder uh, in a small group that brings together people with different ideas. That's harder. The more people you bring into the conversation and the more ideas you have, the harder it gets. Um, but in my experience, the greater diversity, the greater size of the group, the more work that's done to put these ideas together, the better the product is as a result. You mentioned um, that our parties are, you, I think you used the phrase, big tents that bring in many different groups of people um, one of the things I've been noticing over the last maybe decade or so is that, um, the consensus in both tents more and more, um, where worldview is concerned is, uh, landing on something closer to secular materialism, or at least something that, um, leaves less room for participation in that tent by, people who believe in anything supernatural or transcendent, uh, very empirical, very practical. Uh, the way Al Mohler put it, he said that what uh, we're starting to see in the U.S. is an erosion of Christian privilege, where uh, Christians no longer have more access than other people in a lot of communities and in a lot of systems to the levers of power. And as a result, a lot of our institutions are going to start reflecting Christianity back to us less than we maybe expect or hope for, or less than previous generations had experienced. Um, is it a direct line? Is it one step 
from erosion of privilege to open persecution? Or are there a spectrum of relationships Christians can have to their community between privilege and persecution? Sure. I think it's definitely a spectrum, right? It's it's more than one step. And I think it happens incrementally. It might even happen in ways where we don't recognize the increments. And it, it just starts with you know, underlying or really deep-seated values that suddenly you can't assume someone shares those same things. And that starts to surface in various ways. Um, And then it becomes, you know, open conversations to open disagreements to hostility. What can we learn from our brothers and sisters who are in countries where um, Christians might not have privilege or might even go as far as to be marginalized or persecuted about how to maintain our witness and our relationship with our communities? Yeah, it's really humbling, actually. We have a lot to learn um, from them. And, you know, namely one is that they don't face the danger that Americans sometimes face, where we, both our faith and our patriotism gets conflated. And we understand them sometimes to be the same thing when they're not. Um, so for a Christian who, an evangelical Christian living in a country where he or she is their voice is not represented in the government. It's very easy for them to separate those things. And the, you know, their identity really is deeply rooted then in their heavenly citizenship. And it doesn't mean that they don't have any responsibilities to love their neighbor or be a good citizen of their country, but the priority becomes being a witness, being a light in that place. And we've seen really amazing examples of Christians living that out. Um, so, so I would say the second thing is that, um, yeah, these people are really focused on being a witness and loving their neighbor. Uh, and they do that in both very public and quiet ways. You'd mentioned in the U.S. we run the risk of our faith getting caught up with our patriotism. And Ben, I want to toss this back to you. I think another danger we face in the U.S. is our patriotism getting too caught up in our partisanship. Uh, So as someone who has worked in government for a long time, a relatively long time, you've been there over 15 years, um, if someone were to come to you and say, hey, I'm starting to feel like maybe I should be paying more attention to politics, or I'm starting to feel like I should be a little bit more aware of what's going on in the government. Uh, What advice would you give them for learning to be good citizens and be active in politics without necessarily conflating the Mm -hmm. two? Um, How would you advise them to handle both their citizenship and their partisanism well in light of their faith? Yeah, thanks, Rick. Um, so I think the first step is to make sure that um, you develop your identity, develop who you are as a person, as a Christian, uh, making sure that you're thinking through how to live Christianly, how to think Christianly. Um, and maybe I'll come back again after you think Christianly, that think again how to live Christianly again. Um, because when you're out in the, when you're reading the newspaper, um, it's less about reading the newspaper and more about how am I thinking about this, what I'm reading as a Christian and thinking about that effectively. How does God want me to approach this 
uh, information that I'm reading to think about how it informs what I believe and what I think about what's going on in the world. And if we step back and take that step first and think about how God would want us to think about these things, how God and, and how our faith community helps us, let me emphasize that, that like um, we need a faith community to help us work through some of these things. We need other Christians around us, and you need to be reaching out to other Christians to ask them how to think about some of these things. And then once you've done that, you've connected and you've thought about those things deeply and richly, um, going outside the church and saying, what are some other ways, some other strategies, some other ideas that help me understand and think through some of these uh, things I'm reading about and learning about and thinking about uh, that are going on in the world? And there are going to be strategies in the church and there are going to be strategies out in the world that help you think through these things and kind of make sense of them to put them together as a set of ideas and perspectives that you have about them. Um, and so, but what I want to encourage is to think about how we think about that first as, as Christian Christ followers, how we think about that first as believers in Christ, um, and that we take on the mind of Christ um, for thinking then about all those other things, but looking first to scripture to help us make sense, then looking to the systems of the world beyond that to help make sense of ideas within that perspective. Um, there's truth in both places. Um, and I think we need to appreciate and recognize um, those strategies. And then, and then once we have those ideas formulated, both from the church, from our Christian perspective, and from the, the perspectives of the world, whether or not they be different ideologies or perspectives out in the world, then we need to share those both back to other people who agree with us in those perspectives and people who disagree with us. And that whole process is constantly a process that's, a re again, uh, refining those ideas and perspectives. Um, so that might be the last part is to stay open, to stay um, available to hear critique, both from people who you believe uh, other Christians, other people who agree with those ideas, to be open to hearing those, and then being open to hearing from people who disagree with you um, to ultimately make your idea that much better and the way you understand the world that much better by bringing in all those different ideas. A lot of the vocabulary and frameworks were given for thinking about politics and thinking about government in the U in the U.S. is kind of zero-sum, us versus them. The goal of engaging is to win and reshape the government. Uh, but... Uh, I'm curious to ask you, because of your experience with Christians around the world in all sorts of different cultural contexts, and because of your experience with Christians in countries where they don't necessarily have the same access to governmental power that we have in the U.S., um, what, are, what can success look like for us in the public square in the U.S. besides just taking over our state houses and reshaping our laws to reflect uh, our church community standards. Yeah, I think Christians can um, serve in a way where they, you know, their primary goal might not be to change the government, but they're so effective in loving people or caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed that they're recognized by the government. And there's actually a great example of this. Um, in the war in 99 in the Balkans, um, when the refugees were flocking to Albania, it was 
more people than the government could handle. They were struggling to care for these refugees. And it was the evangelical Christians within Albania, who were just 0.5% of the population at the time, cared for 20% of the refugees. They ended up being recognized by the government for that service. So I think in that way, they ended up having uh, some notoriety, some influence, but it wasn't their initial goal. In both Russia and Ukraine, there's a huge drug epidemic and um, governments have tried to provide drug rehab centers and programs uh, to assist people. Um, but really, one of the most fruitful um, institutions there has been the church. So Christians have created and opened drug rehab centers. And these are the centers that tend to be the most fruitful. Um, and this is documented, um, just taking care of people coming coming out of drug addiction, struggling with drug addiction, helping them to get reestablished in the community and become productive citizens again. Um, another would be, um, you know, when there was uh, fighting in uh, Chechnya and um, in the Caucasus, uh, there was a Christian, um, a Christian man in Chechnya, and he was providing help and resources uh, to families there, and he provided them to whoever was in need, regardless of their faith, their religion. And uh, he was so well-respected and had so much trust from the Muslim families that he offered um, an opportunity for some of the children uh, in his villages to go away to camp to a less violent area. And these Muslim families were willing to send their children uh, to a Christian camp, they knew it was a Christian camp, just so that their kids would be safe uh, for a few months in the summer. Mm. And they they trusted him, and they knew that you know he was going to share stories from the Bible and be sharing uh, faith with these children. But they trusted him enough to do that, and he just provided this service. Um, and another would be um, in India, the church there, churches in various villages who dig wells for uh, either Christians who've been denied access or um, for people who are deemed unclean who are also denied access so that they can have regular access to water and clean water, uh, providing services that the government isn't able to do or um, isn't willing to do. Um, they just see a specific need and, uh, yeah, are able to step in and fill that. I think, you know, if we're serving, if we're loving, if we're making an impact and a difference, um, I think there's an opportunity that comes with that then to shape some of the, the debate and shape some of the conversations. I'm reminded from the story you share about a lot of what I've heard about the earliest years of church history under Rome, that uh, when the plagues hit, the Christians died at higher rates than other people because they didn't flee the cities. They sacrificially stayed in the cities where plague was hitting to care for the sick. Uh, they actually caused, uh, I think it was Emperor Julian, got uh, angry uh, at the Christians because uh, they were taking care of the poor around them better than the government was, that they were um, taking care. I think his phrase was um, not not just their own poor, but ours as well. Uh, their neighborliness galled and shamed the non-Christians around them who were charged with the responsibility of 
actually formally charged with the responsibility of um, maintaining order and promoting the common welfare. Rick and and Kara, I think, too, of uh, some of the great stories that are coming from the West Coast uh, of cities and towns where kind of faith leaders have come together and um, kind of done things together that they couldn't have done separately. Um, I saw one Christian leader describe these as kind of shock and awe acts of compassion Mm. um, that kind of shake up um, perceived notions of privilege uh, again and say, we're here to serve. We're here to, um, you know, in the language of Christianity, be Christ, basically, be sacrificial in our community. Um, and as a result of that, that leads to other conversations. That leads to people reaching out and kind of asking what people think about different ideas and perspectives um, from all different parties and all different points of view and perspectives uh, because that sacrificial love um, – uh, I also heard one time that the the, the last great epic uh, of our culture is sacrifice, and that when we see sacrifice, uh, we can't deny it. We we just are compelled by it. Um, and people from all different points of view and perspective, ethnicities and religious backgrounds, we see sacrifice and we um, we're compelled by it. We're moved by it. Um, and so um, that's one really powerful way to connect. Uh, That's one really powerful way uh, individually uh, when you're connecting with somebody and you're relating to somebody to be sacrificial and to be giving, be servant leaders uh, in that space. But then to next, uh, but it also applies corporately. It can apply uh, at the party level. It can apply to your congregation. It can apply to uh, your local um, ANC leader, it can apply to your board of supervisor, connector, just being sacrificial and, um, you know, saying I'm here to help. And that's everything from a fruit basket to say thank you to, um, you know, really, you know, serving refugees that are coming into your country that no one else knows how to handle. Um, It can look like a lot of different ways, but all those ways of appreciation and thanks are um, powerful ways to communicate um, concern communicate support, communicate desire to participate in in what's going on in the community. I was just going to add on to what Ben was talking about and just say it reminds me of the early church in Acts, right? We have people coming together from very different backgrounds, Jews and Greeks and various ideologies, and they come together, you know, with one mission and one purpose, and they're called to be a, a community of radical love acts of hospitality and service and i mean that's how the church has grown to be what it is today was from that foundation that was our interview with ben odell and Kara callahan there's one more idea that i think is important and that we touched on in that conversation but maybe not enough and that idea is how significant the difference between politics and government is Or maybe another way to put it would be to say that we should think about the distinction between the work of government and the politics surrounding government. Government is the work of organizing our shared resources and making sure that the legal rules a society operates by are all creating the conditions necessary for people's lives to be productive and fruitful. Politics is the distribution and redistribution of power, the jockeying to decide which people hold which positions in a culture. 
Every culture and every organization has politics. Our workplaces, our families, and, of course, our government. Because government can wield so much influence over people's lives, politics has always surrounded it. The Chaldeans bad-mouthing Daniel to the emperor and trying to get him thrown out of favor? That was a political maneuver. In a country like Bosnia... In a country like Bosnia, in a system like the one D described, there's no division between politics and government. The Constitution divides the citizens into three distinct groups of people and then says each group has to take turns sending a representative from their group to steer the ship of government. In the U.S., we don't have that. Our politics and our government are two different things, or at least they're supposed to be. Our politics mostly happens through these two political parties, and I'd love to do a full episode sometime in the future about how political parties actually form and how they work. But for now, we can just say that our politics mostly happens by these two parties, by Republicans and Democrats, competing for voters along with a spattering of independents and a few third-party people competing for voters across ethnic, cultural, religious, socioeconomic, and ideological lines. Voters in our system are this mixed grab bag of people, and our politics is the act of trying to figure out how to appeal to enough of those people to get elected. Our government, on the other hand, is supposed to operate above that. Our government was designed to work best when the people involved in it at every level, the executives, the legislators, the staffers, the citizens, when the people who are involved in it don't hold government hostage to politics. In his farewell address, George Washington even begged the country not to form political parties because he thought parties would make doing good work in government harder. Part of his fear was that parties would foster an us-versus-them mindset in our politics that would be impossible to then keep out of our government. When there are recognizable teams to support and oppose, it makes it harder for lawmakers to collaborate with half their colleagues, and it makes it harder for citizens to listen to the needs and concerns of anyone who doesn't share their party affiliation. I'm not going to say that parties are inherently bad, because there are some real advantages to this kind of big tent party system that we have here. Groups of people that would be too small to be seen on their own, or people who are too disempowered to get their concerns heard by our elected officials, can form long-term coalitions with larger groups of people in ways that actually give them a seat at the table that give them a stake in the life and the well-being of their community. For people who believe that every human being is made in the image of God, that's a really good thing. But for people who believe that every human being is worthy of dignity and respect, for people who believe that God has entrusted us with stewardship over the well-being and the well-functioning of the towns and the country into which he's carried us, we need to be aware of the pitfalls that come from letting our politics guide our citizenship or guide our government. We have to be 
assiduous about guarding our hearts. We have to be deliberate about inviting other people to keep us in check, about inviting other people to make sure that we don't neglect our responsibility to rule as citizens for the well-being of the people around us, even if that means listening to, honoring, and working with people from the other party. We have to be willing to demonstrate that being a Christian changes the way we operate as Democrats or as Republicans or as independents. Now, we only have the bandwidth and the time right now to get out about two episodes of the podcast a month, but I am hoping that at some point in the near future we can come back around to this idea and look at it from some other angles or in a little bit more depth because I think the distinction between government and politics is a crucial one to understand and to navigate well if you want to be a good witness in the public square. So hopefully we'll be able to come back to that soon. But for now, before we close out this episode, I want to hand you over to Pastor Charles Drew, author of Body Broken, Can Democrats and Republicans Sit in the Same Pew? He'll be leading us in prayer today. Let me read to you from Romans 8 before I pray. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Our great and sovereign God, we adore you and draw great comfort from the fact that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. There's nothing and no person outside of your majestic and mysterious control. You rule in and over every public official, every economy, every policy, foreign and domestic, every neighborhood, every hospital and health care provider, every heart and choice, every job market and real estate market, every journalist, every police officer, and every community organizer. Our world is broken and at odds with you in so many ways, and yet this brokenness never phases you. You work with it, you work through it, you work despite it to bring your good purposes to pass. We worship you as well, because you are our Father in Jesus. You did not spare him, but you gave him up for us, and you have promised freely to give us all things with him. Though we are not yet fully what we shall one day be, 
And though we and our world still grieve and struggle in cosmic brokenness, all is fundamentally well between you and us, and all will therefore one day be whole. Nothing in all creation can possibly separate us from the love you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess our Father with sadness that we often do not live as if these things were true. We confess that we struggle to trust that you love us and that you rule all things. And for that reason, we are often complicit in the brokenness and cruelty and neglect and godlessness that surround us. We confess that we are often barely distinguishable from our non-believing neighbors. We are often as fearful as they are over losing our jobs and homes and ways of life. We are often as fearful as they are about losing our friends and status, our happiness and health. And with that unbelieving fear often come other things. We are too easily angered. We manipulate the truth and fail to keep our promises. We withdraw into cynicism and grow indifferent to our neighbor's needs and don't listen to those we disagree with, but choose rather to diminish and even to demonize them. We choose to forget that this world is our world and home. Its corruptions and its polarizations are our doing just as much as they're anybody else's doing. We only compound our guilt when we point the finger. Forgive us, Lord, by the cleansing power of your cross. And change us, Father, by the renewing power of your Spirit. Fill us with the faith and hope and love that only your Spirit can give. Fill us with the faith that frees us to say and do the right thing, even when it costs us. Fill us with the love that frees us to engage with people we fear and dislike, as well as the people who fear and dislike us. Fill us with the hope that propels us to work for what is good and true and beautiful, even when nothing seems to come of it. Fill us with the hope that keeps us praying with zeal and compassion for our world, our friends and enemies, and especially for those in authority, for Congress, for the judiciary, for the president and his staff, for the police and all those responsible for civic order and peace. Thank you, Father, that come what may, even the dark scenarios we sometimes imagine, you will be with us, carrying us through into a future that will be lovely and satisfying beyond imagining. We pray with great joy, and we pray with great hope in the name of Jesus, our brother and champion. Amen. Thank you very much, Pastor Drew, for leading us in that prayer. Now, before we close, I want to share a little bit about the Center for Christian Civics and ask for your help. We launched last year with the goal of helping Christians navigate a difficult and complicated election season with grace and nuance. We've added new team members since then with the goal of building a suite of discipleship resources for the church and building programs to support ministry leaders. 
but we're a small team and we all are working other jobs while we put a few hours a week into this. And we're not going to be able to move the ball farther down the field until we can all put more time into it. So we're asking for your help. We want to bring on our first full-time staff member, start integrating our newsletter and podcast more closely into one another, and get our next two Bible study curriculums written. But we can't do that without your support. We're looking for 30 new supporters this summer. 10 supporters each at $25 a month, $50 a month, and $100 a month. I know that there are a lot of organizations and ministries in need of support, but if you've been interested in or encouraged by the dribs and drabs of work you've been seeing from us, and you want to help make these kinds of resources available to more of the church more consistently, this is one of the biggest ways you can do that. You can offer a tax-deductible donation or recurring tax-deductible support on our website, christiancivics.org, where you can also learn more about our work, empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum. We also just sent out to all of our supporters a special bonus episode of the podcast last week that included interview excerpts that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll be sending out another one in the autumn, and it's going to include some more from today's interview, from me and from Ben. So making any donation, a one-time donation or pledging monthly support, means that you'll get that next one when we send it out in the fall. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more from our team on being a better disciple in the public square, sign up for our newsletter. The next one comes out next week, and the podcast will be back in about two weeks. Thanks again for listening and for your support. And as always, if you have any questions or anything you'd like us to cover in a future episode, drop us an email at info at christiancivics.org.